0: Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hi,
1: I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman
2: from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Aaron Draplin about setting up his own shop and about making money as a designer. It's a weird pursuit for loot and loot and loot and whatever you want to call it because I'm trying to earn now while I'm hungry, while I love it, while the phone's ringing because how much do you need to live? Here's
0: Debbie Milman.
1: If you went to a diner and saw Aaron Draplin, you'd probably think, trucker. He's got the car hearts, the sweatshirt, the baseball cap. He's a big guy, he's got a big mouth, and he swears up a storm. But if you sat across from Aaron, you'd notice that his cap reads DDC, for Draplin Design Company. And as for what he's swearing about... It's probably his love for Impco stickers or his disgust for Blippo Bold. Draplin lives in Portland, Oregon and runs his own design company. His work has the clean aesthetics of heavy industry, the prankster sensibility of snowboarding culture, and the attention to detail that comes from hours and hours at the workbench. You can see that sensibility in his work for Burton Snowboards, Wired Magazine, and the Obama administration. You can also see it in his popular brand of notebooks called Field Notes. Aaron Draplin... Welcome to Design Matters. Well, hello, Debbie. It's really good to have you here, big guy.
2: Listen, can I get a word in here?
1: Please, you All can. right, I have a
2: shout out. I got it. Listen, this is my big shot, and I'm not letting it go to hell. All okay, right. Okay. Mom, Dad, beautiful Lee, my little sister Leah, <laughs> Jacob Oliver, Sarah, Ewok, Goo, David Dale, Corey Jess, Evan Rhino, Eric Campbell, Brad, George Martino, and the ghost of Gary Draplin, wherever the hell he's at in the, the cosmos. Thank you, you guys. And uh, okay, let's go. All okay. Right, all right, all right. There we go. You know,
1: business. Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, I want to start um, our interview by asking you about some of your recent comments at the brand new conference in New York City last month. One of the first slides in your presentation included, and it's sort of interesting given your introduction now, included an Empire State-sized thank you to people such as Cousin Tom and Chip Kidd, who I noticed weren't on that list. So why Cousin Tom and Chip Kidd?
2: Well, my, my cousin Tommy uh, uh, lives on 141st Amsterdam, and he, uh, uh, he went to Parsons, actually. Ooh. But he's an artist from our family who, uh, when I was a little kid, had the cool pens and pencils and was my first sort of inkling to this bigger world of art and, and cool stuff and drawing. And, you know, he made it. He moved to the big city here. He's lived here a long, long time. So, you know, he came to the show. So I get to tell my, my story in front of every kick-ass New York person, whatever, to my, my cousin, right? So that's cool. And then Chip, because he's my, he's my new buddy. And we all know who Chip Kidd is. But I'm just going to treat it like made a friend in Boston. You know, I'll give him a shot. He'll give me a shot. It's <laughs> Chip, kid.
1: <laughs> I know. We all know who he Whatever. I was there so, at that fateful meeting, actually. Had, you know,
2: when I met him, you know, you got to keep your shit together and you, gotta, you can't just no, pull, you don't. I bought your books and all I know all this stuff. But I got to meet him and I got to tell my story to Tom, you know. So on either end of the spectrum, I am always freaking out, you know, either for family or these luminaries.
1: Well, you then presented a disclaimer At the conference. And I only have a couple of questions about the conference. It was just so recent, and I was so inspired by everything you said. I want to talk to you about a couple of the things. You presented a disclaimer that included the following, and I'm going to quote you The opinions, half wit sentiment, and absolute fucking truth in this presentation are solely that of the DDC and are meant to be taken with a grain of salt. So just chill out, let it burn, (laughs) breathe real deep, and just plain be glad you don't have anything to do with us.
2: Yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's just sort of like, oh, God, you get up there and you're in front of these people, you're being recorded. And it's like, I have to sign things, NDAs and stuff. And it's like just a riff on like the idea that like, just enjoy this, you know, and and, and it's my, my shot to tell you what I think. But But don't take it too seriously, you know. But yet to have a nod at like some legal disclaimer Mm -hmm. just to make them laugh. So
1: was that your mission statement at all or was that created just just specifically for that moment? moment.
2: To mess with New York City because you're here and it's like that's the biggest show I've done, you know. And out of the 50 or whatever I've done, it's like it's scary to come to New York City because there's going to be someone way smarter than you in the crowd that's going to be able to challenge you appropriately. Bring you back down to size because you're up there. You're this big blustery mess, you know, and I just want them to to take it Have fun with it. But yet it's just one little perspective.
1: Well, you declared that your intention for that talk was to clear the air, blow us away, celebrate being free and win us all over and defy the fucking odds because of the following. That you shouldn't have been there and that you declared you had no credentials, no professional accolades. You've never won an award. You don't have a book to sell and usually don't wear pants. So let's start with the first and go through all of these one by one (laughs) so I can help debunk this magical thinking of yours. First of all, why shouldn't you have been there? Well, uh, because I've gone to the shows and I
2: remember when I was in school, there were guys that would come in and they were really accomplished. You know? And you
1: don't consider yourself accomplished? What planet are you living on?
2: Well, of course I do. But I'm not going to wield it like a knife like those motherfuckers. did. And they, they wouldn't talk to you after the show. You know. And it, all, it always scared me because they were so detached and they were so above it. So I just like the idea of just, like I said, clear the air. Because I, I hope kids are reading the stuff. But I want to come there as just sort of like low as possible to say, now I need to prove to you that I'm, I should be up here. And that's just my, my sort of like nod to like, I'm really thankful to be there. I still feel like I shouldn't, you know, because I've seen the guys and they know how how to like pace themselves and and know how to talk. And and they have this beautiful sense of articulation about how they deliver their message. And I'm up there like I, I get emotional. And I lose my shit because – But
1: that's what people love about it. Well, I and... hope.
2: I hope. But I, I – I, I, that doesn't come off as polished. And I, fine. That is my brand of this garbage. But every <laughs> one of them, it seems like I, I want that kid to feel that, oh, I could have done what he's doing. I could do that. I could have taken his path. I didn't have to take the, the systematic approach to this stuff. You know, this guy didn't. And, and that's what he's saying right now, that it's going to get dirty. It's going to be weird. And I hope you love it because it's meant to blow your mind that – I, it blows my mind.
1: Well, I, I did say we were going to go through the questions one by one, and I think you've answered almost all of them except for the notion that you don't usually wear pants. Notion?
2: What do you mean notion? Well, you're wearing them Real, now. I'm trying to class the place up, Debbie. But, <laughs> <clears throat> well, all this shit is such a shtick. I love it. The idea there is that I am comfortable in my shop, and when I'm comfortable, I can think my head's freer and and this idea of like – business attire and business casual and fucking uh, I don't know like you know like Hawaiian shirt Fridays and all that just bullshit people go through their whole lives there's no politics of that where I live and I have fought hard to not have to wear pants if I want to sit there in my boxers or whatever I can because that's comfortable my dad is a big boxer shorts man it's colder than a mother-in-law's love outside in the dead of winter and my dad's wearing his boxer shorts in Michigan right you know and it's like I'm from that. He was comfortable. He'd get home from work and he'd be comfortable. So there's just this sense of like, I want to work and, and be, feel free and feel chill. Because I know what it's like to be in, a, in you know, uh, some meeting about a meeting. Yes. And everyone hates each other. Emails about emails and we're just wasting our lives away with red tape to try to impress someone, you know. And it's just that idea of like, you can come to my shop and feel like there's no pressure Mr. Client, come to my shop and just take, I mean, whatever, take your pants off, whatever. But relax. Relax. Let's have fun. Making your logo should be fun. And that's the bigger idea. Is, there's, there's not going to be any of this bullshit about freaking people out. And when people come there and they want to use the Internet at the shop or whatever, it's just like, place is yours. I've made it to this point, and it's all yours for the day. Let's go. you know. And then they're comfortable. Because, you know, I've I've tasted a smidge of what it can be like out there, and it might be for some other folks. But, yeah, you know, and you got to be careful because the FedEx guy comes and I greet the door with, you know, my little uh, underoos on. It can get a little tricky. (laughs) We're all friends at this point. So
1: So it seems as if the professional accolades that you're now getting really surprise you. Well, yeah. Why?
2: Because I don't consider myself someone in that pursuit. You know, I mean, I see people say, I've won this award. I'd rather put on my thing. I paid my house off. I paid my house off with these hands with graphic design. You know, I've always had to work. And the idea that I get to do it with design, at 39, almost 39 years old, I can make myself cry thinking about that shit because I just didn't think it'd be like that. I remember meeting a guy right out of high school who came in and spoke to us from some sort of showroom thing in northern Michigan. Big quaff of hair and whatever else and sideburns and just just scared you to work in a creative field he was retouching retu- whatever he was doing but it just didn't seem fun and then i'm in there to start this new life in art and it's like oh this guy just looks like hell and he it's, it's gonna be horrible and you barely make a living and and then a decade later 15 years later now i've done really well with this stuff but it's not about you know oh i climbed this ladder i'm at this level i don't care about any of that shit
1: so you were born in Michigan, yeah, yeah, and then you went to school in Minneapolis, and you very intentionally went into design. You went to the Minneapolis College of Art. Yeah. What made you decide you wanted to be a designer?
2: Well, I think that goes way back to getting around right out of high school and that, you know, I wanted to go into art, but I knew that fine art was tricky. I wanted to go make a living, and there was just a sort of tradesman quality to, like, making a newspaper. Everyone's going to need a newspaper forever because it's scary where I'm from. That you get to go and make a living in art, it defies the other people that are making a living. They build homes. They uh, sell insurance. I mean, they do normal stuff, you know. And it's like to go work in the arts, that only gets to happen in the big cities where they have that sort of funding or appreciation for that shit. So there it was like a very pragmatic sense to say commercial art seems um, doable. I can always draw and paint. Like I've been doing all my life. But I don't want to be this kid who's like hurt because he couldn't make it in that zone. I can learn a trade. And that's really where it started. The art came in when it surprised me that there was so much beauty to like the hierarchy of a page of a newspaper, of a grid. That was the sucker punch. The craftsmanship of a logo the size of a dime or on the side of a Learjet. And some of these new names I was getting into. The power, beauty, and street sense of chuck anderson hey chuck this is aaron i'm on my, I'm on my way up man and how you doing tell Lori i said hi okay but you, Can know, you but ask
1: I, him if he'd come on be on the show Oh,
2: Chuck, <laughs> chuck you got it get so they're so nice to you free waters and shit they're great people uh uh, uh that's my that, those were my heroes i mean really you know and the icons of one of his you know one of the guys that worked with him todd piper houseworth it was just like i went to minneapolis because of that and and I went to Minneapolis because there were these ghosts of these underdog bands, your replacements, your who's and all the stuff that didn't quite make it, but was beautiful. And they don't care if they didn't make it. They just made great stuff. And it wasn't about having some big house like Prince or something. It was about just fucking going for it. There was something really uh, attractive about that. And then, you know, it's a big art school. I wanted to go to art school. I, was, I, I wanted to see if I could cut it. I didn't even think I'd even get in. I got a monster scholarship. And then I got to go to art school. And, man, the first day in, man, they just reset you. It was great. How did they reset you? What did they oh, say? What did the they scared the shit do? out of you. Just, this, this, this instructor named Callie Nikitas, she's, man, that woman is just a, a force of nature. I mean, I've been forever in every type decision now. Take she, she, she resonates <laughs> with me. What, yeah. We had a couple, you know, some friction. Like, I know a way to do it. She knows a better way to do it. I don't know. Whatever, you know. And, and then the sense of just me being afraid of every class. Like, this class costs $400. Why is that kid sleeping? kid next to me or something, yeah. because I paid for it. I paid for every cent of it, whatever. I had a big scholarship, but I left there with a big-ass, you know, loan, which I promptly paid off as soon as I could. And then I was from five, nine and a half to five, nine and three quarters when I got that loan off my back.
1: Now that you've paid off your house, you must be like six <laughs> one.
2: As my dad says, when I lay down, I'm six foot seven.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so in two thousand, according to the official bio on your website, you accepted an ill-fated art director position with Snowboarder magazine, and you moved it all down to shithole Southern California, know, alongside some hot caustic beach, <laughs> and wrangled some twenty three issues of the magazine. In the process, you won art director of the year for Prime Media 2000, beating out such titles as (laughs) Gun Dog, Cat Fancy, and Teen. So tell us more about that experience and why your position was ill-fated.
2: Well, it was California.
1: And I was living in the
2: cities, you know, in big city Minneapolis, and I was starting to meet some of these Heroes. I got to intern for Chuck.
1: How did you? Now we have to stop everything. How did you get to intern for Chuck? Because I buddy know PJ, my,
2: my buddy PJ, my buddy PJ Schmeel. How, how
1: did that PJ Schmeel help you?
2: PJ, God, now there is a champion of the world right now in Paw Paw, Michigan. PJ Schmiel is is getting himself ready for I mean all sorts of things, design projects, vegan uh, activism, Armageddon, all sorts of shit. PJ Schmeel, everybody, an incredible guy. Um, he worked for Chuck. He was an incredible illustrator and in this incredible typographer, PJ, and he knew as a fan and he got my foot in the door and really we were scanners. I didn't even crack over an illustrator once the whole time I was there. I scanned in shit for my first whatever, six weeks or something and then I was promoted to what I like to call pick and fly shit out of Pepper. I was in Photoshop working on these dots, you know, and it was incredible. Like we were working on, you know, some of his big archives and when Chuck would talk you would listen. It was incredible. He was my hero, and he was this really larger-than-life character who made this incredible living and beautiful work that my dad could enjoy, and then of course French paper could go and slay the world with, you know. So I mean, I would leave there on Fridays. I would leave so high. I'm a teetotaler. I don't mess with any of that. You know, anything weird. And I would leave. Is that there. by
1: choice or by. Well, uh, I guess it would always be by I've choice. I've just always but. been kind
2: of freaked out by it, you know, whatever. I've, I've, you know, I've howled at the moon a couple times in my day, Debbie, sure. I have barfed all over the place in Las Vegas a couple times, <laughs> no big deal. Um, but I just, it's just, just more. I, I'd rather spend the time instead of s- sitting in some bar bullshitting all night working, really. And that's really been the path for that. Every now and again, I'll, I'll drink a, an ass pocket of whiskey and, and uh, you know, see stars and cry and dance and then be sober by midnight. Right? Seriously, because it's just too weird. Uh, what was I even talking? You're about? You're talking about Charles Something Anderson. Profound, so, t- um, tell you know, me what Charles
1: uh, and what what is the most important thing you learned from Charles? To
2: just grab it, to go and invent it. You know, um, he gave life to these old forms that I didn't quite understand uh, how he could really go do that. But, you know, he um, he saved and rescued so much beautiful vernacular, right? That's a big word. But to me it was just like old stuff that was just cool. I didn't want it to die, you know. And to see Chuck inventing that stuff and then, you know, really like putting his style first, it felt very uh, daring to me.
1: So why was your your job at the magazine oh, yeah. so ill fated? Your so snowboarder? Much. No, no, no! Please don't be sorry. Your your ill fated, self described yeah. ill fated position yeah. at Snowboarder Magazine. I was excited to get the
2: position, but I knew there was a time. I don't like California, you know. I mean, I, whatever I like it, but so you really just went there for the job? I went there for the, absolutely. We were a scrappy bunch. Pat, Jeff, Mark, all of us. You know, we were we were brothers instantly. And we really banded together and we worked very late and I could not pass it up because it was the magazine I read growing up. So here's my chance to contribute to this little snowboard world. And um, I got to go in there and really flex my muscle with this new sense of publication design and this responsibility to like actually tell a story and allow the photos to breathe, you know. Some big concepts for the beach down there, whatever. The fucking <laughs> surfers, they just give us no love. I mean, there's a hierarchy in this stuff. You know. I, these days, I don't give a rat's ass to the kids riding a tuba down the hill, whatever. But surfers are the hot shit. They're good-looking, whatever. And then it goes skateboarding. And somewhere in there falls snowboarding. Right up above, like, rollerblading. Ooh, <laughs> that shit's rough. But so we're at least above them. And anyway, you know, I'd walk into those surf turkeys and just be like, so, fellas, you know, another photo of some dick on a piece of fiberglass. Whatever. You know, look at you guys just splitting hair. Whatever. And they'd get out of here, dropping Whatever. It was scrappy. And it was fun. And I am not for the beach. I'm not meant for that shit. I'm from Michigan from Lake Michigan, you know, and you're there and it's like, you know, you're Southern California's trappings of speed and greed and fast. And I, listen, I met so many cool kids from there. So I know I'm a dick for saying all that stuff, but I got down there and my rent was 1800 bucks or something. For, I mean, for just, I know that's not shit here, but, but
1: no, no, no. For I actually, that's a lot of money I mean, for
2: me to come down there and like rent whatever it was, it was just too much. And you're, who the fuck lives with cruise control set at eighty-nine miles an hour? I used to get on that highway and drive from Del Taco, Del Vista, Hell, you know, Orange County, whatever, down to our next little port, ninety miles an hour. Who lives wants to live like that? My life in Portland's been cut in half. Like I, I drive forty-five in Portland. You know, and it's, it's cool. So you're down there and it was just, you know, I just knew that like, I'm going to do my best for the boys for a couple of years, but I am never going to try to buy a home down here. You don't even feel that you could buy a home. I mean, really, I, I probably still couldn't today. And I just didn't like the sense there that like, if you're some young family who's a different color, you know, you have a hard go. I didn't like the, the gap between having shit and just making it and then having everything and looking down on everybody and you felt it at every intersection i swear i'm delusional but in minneapolis i felt like i don't i could own a little piece of it you know and to go down there i just knew it was, there was a time to it there's this time but it. it was like you know, i'm not i'm not going to give my life to these guys and i fought it and i fought it and i did my job and i got out of there and i got rescued back to oregon which was just incredible
1: so aaron in the fall of 2004 you started draplin design company what made you decide to go out on your own well, I guess
2: it's just the lure of um picking your own clients, making your own hours, making more loot.
1: Well, let's just get down to it. Well, were you ever worried that you weren't going to make enough loot?
2: Every day. And are you still? Oh, things are got a hell of a fourth quarter coming up here in Melman. Oh yeah. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the idea of like I can make fifty grand go really far and be lucky to have that fifty grand and live within it. Not lament it. You add a one in front of that shit and you keep that same thing going. And that's what's happened, you know. And it's just amazing to me that like when I left professional, whatever you want to call it, studios, I tripled my wage. Because we're not paying for lights, overhead things, modern chairs, plane trips, whatever. It goes into your pocket. And so you have the freedom to stack up so many jobs on my time to broker the deals Sometimes for no money. Sometimes for a ton of money. It was like all was cool. Everything was cool. And it started to add up. And before, when I worked at my first job, which was obviously in the magazine or my second job, which single design office. And it's an incredible place. You know, I I don't want to ever – talk. I would never talk about them bad. I mean they're – it was a wonderful place to work. You know, this guy, Kirk James, he will have books written about him. I mean, that is all there is to it. Product design, logo design. This is an in- fucking incredible American designer, Kirk James. And I got to work for him and learn from him. But it became just like, I need to spread my wings, man, you know, whatever that is. And I went and did it, and he, you know, whatever. And I got to work for two years for those guys, and I was so proud of it. But I wanted to see what I could do on my own.
1: How did you get your early clients? Did they call you or did you call them?
2: Well, a lot of it was snowboarding stuff. So it was, um, I guess, residual relationships of just sort of buddies I knew not only from the lift and the hill, but guys I met when I, during my time in the magazine. And we were starting to invent little brands, or you know, you get a group of guys together and you have a couple investors, and it's like a little headwear company. Cole Headwear. So I mean, I've been with him for ten years. What's up, Brad? You know, sorry about the the new ad. See, I'm airing all my my dirty laundry here. Sorry, Brad. I'm a bad person. Thanks for giving me 10 years of love. Or Union Binding Company, my buddy George and Martino. You know, these guys have believed in me for eight years now. These are all buddies from Seattle and stuff. And these are little things that turn to big things now, years and years later. But we're still a small team. it's still very intimate. And it's still very, like, uh, immediate. We make our decisions. We stay way under budget. You know, there's no sense to go too crazy. And those relationships just came from trust that I could speak their language. And I had cut my teeth in the West doing what they were doing, hitting big jumps and whatever I was doing. I gave my life to that stuff, to snowboarding. It wasn't just something I did coming from some city. I went and lived it. So that puts you into a different chapter. Are you
1: you a good snowboarder?
2: I was. Yeah? (laughs) Anymore. God, like my dad says, I don't even buy green bananas anymore. (laughs) Anyway. you know, yeah, yeah, I did it. I I, I moved out west to do it, and we, we rode like badasses. It was great. And then you get to the end of that, and you're okay to move on to something, which was designed for me. Years later now, I'm almost 40, I have friends who are still chasing their snowboarding, but I I kind of, you know, I gave it up. But that's how it started. And then it would be like I kept a, a robust blog with freebies, just celebrating design and sharing stuff and ne- never being about, like, trying to make a dollar off. It was just like I get to put this up. It's cool. You know, I'm going to show all the shit I saw in Kansas City and make light of the fact that I get to go. Now my new life is on my own. I can go for 12 weeks, drive across America, see all this shit, work in some flop house for the night, seriously, and get all my work done. You know, like, and they don't even know where I'm at. You know, that was insane to me. So I'd go junk during the day and make little, you know, trips out of this stuff. And then at night I would work. And, and out of that, you know, a friend tells a friend. A band tells a band and all this other stuff and, and you know, now I'm getting calls from big stuff. And that's when the tone changes, and it goes from this to even tighter emails, better timing, and really making a hierarchy. If they're if they're coughing up some big coin, they go right to the top, you know. These other scrubs that have given me life, thank you guys. But it's like when you work kind of for free, it's not the same as someone who's making you sign NDAs about this, that, the other, and then you get a what do you call it at the end? You get a A paycheck. Imagine that. you know. So it's been
1: cool. I want to talk to you about a couple of projects. Um, The first project I want to talk to you about is working on the National Security, American Recovery, and Reinvestment Act identity. It's a mouthful, right? It is a mouthful. (laughs) And working with, of course, the big man. Tell us about that experience.
2: Every time I tell you, I start to cry because I didn't think what would actually happen. I I went and saw the inauguration. You know, from 26 to 34 – I was scared to death of that asshole on top. Just a bad person. I just didn't trust him. I was just afraid of his mouth. And here's this guy in front of the world, and he says shit like I'm the decider. The world just thinks we're dumb. I preach and sell a certain brand of dumb. Fine. (laughs) But at the very top like that, scared me. And here's this new guy, and he just exhibits this, like, poise and grace, beauty, history, defiance of the odds, defiance of all this stuff, and I just believed again that we could do something cool. So I was a fan, and then to see that logo was like, "Oh my God, it speaks to me. I'm easy. You know design-wise, it's, it's a beautiful system, a beautiful sense of like how to plug that stuff in all across every single state, not just the ones that are going to vote for you. And I fell in love with just this idea of they allowed good design into that world. And you see this thing, and you're like, How, "Who gets to do the logo?" Well, it was that Saul dude? You know, whatever it was, and he, you know, he did it. But I would never be able to contribute. And then a month later, I get a call.
1: Phone a- rings, and
2: it's a Steve Juras from Mode Project in Chicago. He says, "Draft, we like your work, and we, you know, we know that you're down with Obama, and you know, have you heard of the stimulus package?" Oh fuck, of course, you know, whatever. It is. And and it, it, you just get cosmic because it's like. Well, would you like to work on this logo for us for Mr. Obama? You know. And they put me on hold because, you know, Axelrod's people were calling him. And you get three minutes because, you know, they're, not only do they run the free world, but they got to put a little icing on the cake of this $800 billion stimulus package logo project. You know, Steve and his team, they were designing, you know, for freedom, for like America, you know, and they get to talk to these guys. And do, how can they even get up and go to work knowing what they're carrying on their shoulders? It's way bigger. Then I get a tax rate cut or this or that. It's like that thing could get America, like, right. That thing that they're working on, that's some heavy shit. And that we got to contribute to that. Me and my buddy Chris Glass, who's just, just an incredible person, uh, cancer survivor and fucking, you know, activist and killer photographer and designer and just a great guy from, from Cincinnati. We got to work on it. He did his half. I did my half. We worked together on the thing, and we knocked it out over three days. So that's pretty cool. I was proud to – really proud to contribute.
1: It's nice to see the highway signs with the logo on it that the stimulus package has helped create this particular infrastructure improvement. So let's talk about another project, and that is Consolidated Fiction, the project that you did with John Hughes. I know that that also might make you cry, uh, but I know it's I try to keep it a secret. Oh, you do? Yeah. So should we not talk about
2: it? Well, we can talk about it, but it's more like come to the show and I'll tell you the whole damn story. But basically I got to work for – Farmer John who turned out to be John Hughes, that John Hughes. The John Hughes that made it OK for me to survive high school. It could have just been Farmer John. And I so sti- somebody
1: called you and said his name was Farmer John. Well, you had no he said idea. it was John.
2: He, was, he had a farm. He needed help with an identity. And- so you
1: had no idea it was the no idea. John Hughes. I had no idea. That's a fairly common name. Yeah.
2: You know, and I didn't really find out until a couple weeks later, 10 days later or something, where it was like after we were bullshit and becoming buddies. And then when he kind of told me who he was – you know, he kind of said something like it took you long enough, man. So, I mean, the way to come into that is like if it was just Farmer John or just John who owned a farm, in Northern Northern North, I would have helped him and wrapped up the job and been proud as shit to do it. But it was that job. So there's a certain poignant quality of just like who knows where these jobs are going to go and you just can't judge by big numbers or big whatever or and, you know, so I don't like, you know, freak out, you know, and like suddenly change the way I work because he's that John Hughes. I didn't.
1: And so you created an identity yeah, for him. Yeah, I did a couple
2: identities. I did some business cards for him, and there were all these plans to do other stuff too. I mean, sadly, John passed, and I, you know, now that you know we're broadcasting to 50 million people and whatever the hell it is, it's scary because it's like a secret. That's why I tell it the show because it shouldn't have happened, you know, and it did, and it was really cool. But it's also like a really weird sort of like you got to act on stuff to go meet these people. He was busy. I was busy. And you just don't think that a guy, you know, is going to pass at 59 or whatever it was. But it was that John Hughes. He was an incredible man, so talented and so nice and weird, too. You know, he called me late at night and he knew about incredible bands and the language he was would use, would just had this beautiful cadence to it, you know, like his movies. And um, I'm
1: just really proud to have helped out. I read your list of seven goals, and I'd like to share these with our listening audience and then ask you about them. It's a list of seven goals that start with, number one, make the time. Number two, now's my time to earn. Number three, and I'm not wasting my years. Number four, my days are packed solid. Number five, I'm doing my damnedest to work on stuff I love. Number six, save as much loot as possible. And number seven, then quit.
2: Well, that's like a declaration, of sort of uh, independence, it's sort of an apology to parents and loved ones to to Lee, why I work so much, or why I don't go home more, or
1: what would you do instead? What would you do? What will you do when you quit? I don't know. That's why a, would you quit?
2: You, know, you love know. it so much. Well, yeah, I'm not going to qu- I'm not going to quit. I will make logos until this mouse finger is just dead, right? But I always try to recognize what year I'm in, what I'm doing, and the grand scope and the little scope and do it right the best I can. But the path I've chosen, it's sedentary. You sit in your ass all day. It's a weird pursuit for loot and loot and loot and whatever you want to call it because I'm trying to earn now while I'm hungry, while I love it, while the phone's ringing because how much do you need to live? And it's just to to list that shit it's meant to be dumb and funny, whatever. But it's it's like a declaration to say I'm thinking about that stuff all the time. And I'm not going to waste these years trying to be something i'm not or lamenting i didn't have the right job or the big job no you invent your life some way you know and um and then i'm going to quit and i'm not going to keep chasing the big or little carrots on sticks for things that you know someone brings me something and then i hand it back to them and they make 500 fold what my little pittance was that's fine that's business what if we made those things Field notes. I want to Same. talk to you about field oh, we'll notes. get notes, <laughs> or made logos for people, and I want to present you something that I made a logo for Design Matters. Now, listen, I you know I've had I've had some years in the game here, and I know that we we were hammered, we, we were hammered talk. at that uh, thing. Uh, I you know? wasn't hammered. And I'm going to get the old laptop <laughs> out here. I know I'm me either, but still, you know, we you were like you should make uh, a logo. This is for a precedent. Me. You should make a logo for me, and well, I did, and I just wanted to get on you know on, on sort of film here or, or <laughs> on, you know get it recorded of what it's like to. To try to make a logo for, for for Debbie the Debbie Millman right and go for the gold and then present it and say now listen I don't know if it's the right thing or the wrong thing and I hope you like it and maybe there might be something but you told me what you wanted and I just gave it a shot so if you want you can put that on the on the table and you can click through it here and here just put, and then we'll just do a little presentation here of like you know I'm trying
1: wow. to make, oh my god it's trying beautiful. to make logo
2: it's rattling around here okay everyone relax. And, you know, and just to say, okay, you know, this is what, you know, uh, transmitting to all reaches of the globe, New York City, New York. Here we are in New York City with W. Millman. And then, you know, what happens when it becomes this little weird nameplate? I thought that first page was the
0: first. Or or
2: some weird little little thing that um, becomes a sticker or a nameplate or some like one of the cool. I mean, this is all state of the art shit you guys here. Very class act. But what if there was some old dead radio in a closet? (laughs) And that's where you'd find this old sense of just utility, right? And then what happens when we have build you a little icon or something? You know, this is what I do, right? It's gorgeous. Wait till you see the invoice for this shit. Anyway, okay. And then, you know, this is what it would really look like in the world. So I don't know. Like, that's a good starting point. It's round one. It's gorgeous. You know, give me a shot. We got a logo. Give me a
1: shot. We got a logo. And we'll see.
2: And I I hope you dig it. And then, you know, that's how this stuff works. And, and, uh, you know, uh, 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 there you go. So uh, I know that was sort of impromptu. But that's how we roll.
1: That you know, is my You visit. asked for it. I did. We deliver. Well, I want to ask you about Field Notes. Thank you for this. It's it's Well, thank you for now Field Now I got your you Yeah, right? I'm a little lovely. let me wobbly. ask you a
2: couple questions. <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay. okay uh,
1: well, I want to ask you about Field Notes first. <laughs> All right.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: So you st- you created Field Notes in 2006. Your slogan for Field Notes is, I'm not writing it down to remember it later. I'm writing it down to remember it now.
2: That's actually Jim Kudal's grandpa. Really? That's what he used to say.
1: So how did this happen? How did you create this? this
2: Masterpiece of paper and staples? Well, I'm going to tell you right now. Absolutely. uh, First of all, to everybody who's buying those things, thank you. All right? Thank you very much. But I draw. I write. I make notes. I make lists. I love making really insurmountable lists and crossing shit off. Right? It feels good. It's not data backed up on some weird hard drive. It's like a real thing. You cross it off a list. So it's appreciation for, like, writing and this craft that we're losing and my grandmother's handwriting that was just this chicken scratch, Polish whatever. You know, I I wanted to make something selfishly for me. You know, and years of collecting old farmer notebooks and ledgers and you have See, drawers of these
1: things, yeah, I mean, which are magnificent. That shit, which is
2: just—it's just dead. It's dead paper, and it's there's no uh, value whatsoever until it gets into some antique shop, and then some old, you know, just beast of a woman says it's twenty-five bucks. There's no science there. It's garbage, whatever. But I found such beauty and the utilitarian quality. You know, this ubiquitous quality to like how to talk about corn or feed. Or like weird jokes and stuff. And it was just these beautiful little things that I collected for years. And then I wanted to make my own. Because all the stuff I saw out there that was its contemporary version of it was Hello Kitty or whatever the hell. And that's fine. But I wanted a bad version with one font, Futura Bold, that was meant to be a nod to like seeing an old manual or something. Where it was just, it wasn't about, it's not about design at all. It's about the pure function of just saying, this is what our name is. Like now we make logos for our, our kits and stuff, and it always feels like feels really indulgent. Like we could just like just spell it out, you know, because that's how they used to do it. The manual for the for the lawnmower wasn't really much different than the weed whacker. It was just to tell you how to build it, right? There's a certain unfuck with ability to that stuff, you know. And and basically, I know it's a scientific term, but that's what field notes really meant to me was like it's paper fits in your pocket. It's made by the grace of Niles, Michigan, at French paper company. They make, you know, hello, Jerry, all you guys, six generations, Jerry French, you know, that we got to use their paper and support something made in the States. And the staples are made here and everything else, you know. And it was just this sense of, like, we can make these things too. Give them the personality that they deserve or, or don't deserve. I love Muji. I love the Moleskines and all that stuff. But I also wanted to have a big, dumb logo. And, like, Jim, you know, my... Oh man. Jim Kudal, everybody. Jim, oh, man, my buddy, you know, a hero of mine, you know, a midwestern just. So you badass. met you yeah. showed
1: him your concept yeah. and he said, Let's do this, baby. I, I actually
2: screen printed a couple hundred. And being a fan of Jim and all of his stuff and I don't want to out on uh, on because, you know, we're captains of industry together. Yes. But I was a fan, still am. And I got to Who isn't? Him, I well right. I gave him a stack and said, so, What do you th- take and he, you know, Drapa, you saw a bitch. You got we got something here. Well, I don't know what to do. You know, I just was giving out to friends. So How many a,
1: versions do you have now? Because you have—it seems like hundreds of colors. I mean, it's a you know, real empire now. It's, well,
2: we're—you know—it should be—it should be, it should be um, fun, and you should always have them on you at all times. Absolutely. To, to, you know, I have poetry, one right here in front or, of me. Death threats or gambling debts, Debbie. Whatever you—you know—you're yeah. you're keeping track of. But <laughs> you know, <laughs> it should be fun, and it—and the bigger thing is that we can make those things. As designers, we do that, and then we sell that idea to someone, and then they go. Make a scrillion bucks and they're driving a fucking cigarette boat up and down the Hudson River or something. That's the way this stuff really goes. You know, And I know you work on the real, some big, big stuff, but it's like we can work on some of these littler things, too. And it's OK. And it's like I just want to make something that I could completely not just control, but love and believe in. Right. And be proud to, like, give a stack to my mom. My mom uses them. Hello, Mom, right? I'm going to see my mom in two days. I have a beautiful mom.
1: I know. You know i, mean, she's just, I
2: mean, I'm just. And you have a very handsome dad. Oh, my dad. Jim Draplin, everybody, the, the Kmart's blue light special champion of northern Michigan. My dad, he is a fucking animal. He's going to be 70 this year. So Good for uh, him. Yeah, and that's when we're going uh, to disbar him from the family. <laughs> We're done. We're enough. After all this, yeah. He's no. got a
1: good beard too. I have too. a
2: great mom. I have a great dad. I have, you know, I'm just very lucky with them, and you know, to see them use them or whatever. It's um, it's not this weird vapor that only shows up in a Twitter feed or something, or is like an ad that you know dies after one month in some cool magazine. No, they work. And if I, you know, if there was a fire at the shop, God forbid. Whoever forbid, the Cosmos, the whatever, you know, that, that whoever forbid, I'd grab my field notes because I've charted my whole life. Everything I owe, everything I'm owed, everything I'm excited to do, whatever, you know, schematics, whatever.
1: So oh, you'll have to publish those one day. Oh,
2: well, I'd grab, I mean, I've got a big stack. So I've got all that shit. And I mean, that's, you know, I mean, on the plane yesterday, you can see here for proof, I'm working out. Um, I can't even talk about it. There's a music festival in the Northwest that... I get to work on and nice. I am pumped. But there you know here I am working out concepts and little little doodads and everything from the Twitter avatar up to what the poster is going to look like and how we're going to knock this thing out for them. and it's like when you're on a plane and you're not allowed to use your phone or whatever you, you know your field notes are always kind of fair game and there's just a sense of like that works on a bus or I don't know when you're on the pot whatever you want to call it it's it's this idea of like when I'm falling asleep at night or whatever I will, like, oh my God, that's a cool idea. And I will get right up. My field notes are right there. Yeah. And I'll sketch. Write your dreams down. Just my stuff. Yeah. You know, I don't want to lose these things, you know. So.
1: My favorite part of field notes is a line on the back where you talk about your story and you refer to field notes as something that hopes of offering an honest memo book worth filling up with good information. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, sort of the way I see you.
2: Hey, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's. It's cool because it's just sort of like, you know, we own it and, you know, the profit goes really to us and then it goes right back into more cool shit. So it's this neat cycle that they're going to get better. And it's because everyone's getting into it, you know, and whether or not we did well with it, that's not really been the concern. You know, it's like we're just doing it. And we're like I said, we're really offering something that is really starting to become fun, you know, and at 40. You know, Jim's like, he's going to call me down to, you know, up to the big leagues when I quit fucking around with all these other things I've been working on. I'm going to go work on field, notes a whole lot more. And then we're, we're going to, you know, properly slay the world and get rich. No, I don't know what I'm talking I
1: can't about wait that. to see that. Well, I don't know about that.
2: Or just whatever, make more cool shit. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: Aaron, thank yeah. you so much for being on Design all Matters. Right. To learn more about Aaron Draplin, there's nothing better than meeting him in person. Take a look at the schedule for his current road show, Tall Tales from a Large Man, that and a rockin' picture of him and his dad is at draplin.com slash gigs. I'd like to thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica